Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 16th, 2006. I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Today we will be speaking with Dr. Derek Angus, MD, MPH, FCCM, about a new multicenter research consortium called PROCESS, Protocolized Care for Early Septic Shock. This consortium is beginning a large-scale study to determine whether specific interventions can halt the progression of severe sepsis syndrome and septic shock. Dr. Angus is heading up this project and will lead a team of intensive care unit and emergency department personnel in this large study, which is being supported by an $8.4 million grant from the National Institute of General Medical Sciences, part of the NIH. Dr. Angus wears many hats, and I will try and get this right. He is professor uh, of critical care medicine in the Department of Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. He is also vice chairman for research uh, in that department, and he's director of the CRISMA Laboratory, Clinical Research, Investigation, and Systems Modeling of Acute Illness. Thank you so much, Dr. Angus, for joining us today. Thank you. I thought I'd begin by giving you an opportunity to speak a little bit about the background of this, um, I guess, project or consortium. And uh, it sounds like from my preparing for this, it's not one particular trial. It's, it's forming a group of institutions to study this, or maybe if you could take it from there. The background from a research question standpoint is really goes back to Manny Rivers' paper published in 2001. Uh, as you know, he had a single-center study from Henry Ford showing that in a relatively small number of patients presenting to the emergency department with signs and symptoms of either overt septic shock or cryptic septic shock, that a multi-component strategy uh, for which he coined the term early goal-directed therapy uh, could uh, successfully decrease mortality remarkably. And uh, this study was wonderful. In a way, it, it fitted with many people's uh, conceptual idea of what would be the right way to care for septic shock, and it appeared to offer significant benefit. Uh, on the other hand, in a way, it was about maximizing uh, uh, perfusion, which in a large number of prior studies, which admittedly were typically conducted in the ICU and therefore started later, uh, there had failed to, these prior studies had failed to be successful except for the very early studies by Shoemaker, which also shared the commonality that they were begun early in the process. Um, another issue is that the therapy was several components. It was six hours of standardized resuscitation by a group of experts who really focused their time and attention on the particular patient. And it involved a stepped algorithm that included a combination of fluids, 
suppressors, inotropes, and even blood transfusions, titrating um, to a number of measures of the adequacy of perfusion, uh, one of which was central venous oxygenation. So while the study was fantastic and groundbreaking and clearly one of the most important studies in our field, uh, it still left unanswered uh, a few questions. And uh, we were interested in trying to answer these questions. The questions are, first, can the study conducted at a single center be reproduced? Is it actually reproducible across a large number of centers? Uh, this is a very generic question that is really across all areas of medicine. Uh, and is analogous to even FDA approvals, where a small study such as a phase two study is very promising, and then one wants to conduct a larger phase three study, a confirmatory trial. So part of our job is simply saying, when you take this strategy and put it into a wide set of environments, in a wide set of hands, for a wide set of patients, do you still get the benefits? And it doesn't need to be as big a benefit, but you would still like to hope that it was beneficial. In other words, a confirmatory trial. Uh, another question was exactly what part of this team-based resuscitation strategy is necessary? Uh, Manny felt uh, appropriately that there could be an important number of patients who, despite attempts to give adequate fluid resuscitation to, these patients would still um, perhaps have low SCVO2s, which would be a proxy for a low SVO2, and that therefore there should be some flexibility within the strategy to titrate either blood transfusions or inotropes in order to make sure that there's adequate oxygen delivery and not just uh, uh, making sure that the heart was well filled. Uh, and that's valuable. However, his strategy to do that involved placing a central line, a central line that gave a continuous readout of SCVO2, and involved in about 60% of the patients giving blood transfusions within the first six hours of arrival. Some of that represents quite a departure from existing care. And I think for a number of people, you might say, do you need all of the early goal-directed therapy? Or was a lot of the bang for the buck simply by having an organized sepsis team recognize those patients, see those patients, and decide, I want to give those patients a lot more care and attention. If I think they need fluid and they need fluid fast, I'm actually going to ensure there is rapid access, and I'm going to stand over the patient and make sure that that liter of fluid is actually given in 20 minutes and not just an order to give IV one liter only to find that two and a half hours later only 200 cc's has gone in, et cetera, et cetera. Therefore, a second question for us was to try to tease out how much of that full package is actually necessary. Can a lot of the goals be um, obtained, the improvement in outcome be obtained simply by having a sepsis team that arrives rapidly and stands over the patient and does a lot of the basic ABCs properly. Um, and it's not to say that uh, emergency medicine physicians aren't entirely capable of doing that. It's simply to say that an emergency medicine physician uh, in their current practice may work in overstaffed, overcrowded EDs and may have a cryptically septic shock patient be just one of several patients that they're managing simultaneously. 
and that perhaps EDs should reorganize themselves or hospitals should reorganize themselves to have sepsis teams akin to stroke teams or trauma teams that would get activated and would really prioritize these patients for time and attention at a greater level than they currently do. To address that, uh, we're interested in a three-armed trial, not simply a repeat of Manny's original trial, but a trial that would compare usual care patterns to, uh, uh, to two team-based strategies, one being uh, a complete replication of the reverse strategy, the early goal-directed therapy, and the other one being a partial replication that would still have the team and still have a lot of the fluid resuscitation, but not necessarily uh, measuring SCVO2 and not necessarily giving blood transfusions on the basis of a low SCVO2. Well, that was, um, you know, in, in preparing for this, I wasn't able to get as much detail as you went into just now, which is exciting for the podcast. But I, I was wondering, uh, there must have been, as you were designing this, some significant uh, ethics, at least discussions uh, revolving around, you know, I would imagine two major areas that I would love to hear your opinion on. One is uh, the control arm, especially in an era where many intensivists are being trained, especially with the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, that something like an early goal-directed therapy is becoming a reasonable standard of care. And then secondly, I would imagine the great challenges of getting consent in the first six hours of somebody with sepsis. And I was wondering if you could address those issues. Let me take them in reverse order. Consent. Uh, consent has actually been a very interesting issue. We uh, ran through, in the last few months, a discussion about consenting with OHRP, the Office for Human uh, uh, research protection uh, that has federal responsibility for the conduct uh, of clinical trials and also our own IRB. And uh, this trial is actually typical of a large number of trials that are being considered not just in sepsis but in general resuscitation strategies for acutely ill patients. And if these patients were having acute cardiac arrest, then you might think this is a life-and-death situation. There's absolutely no time for consent. This is clearly a candidate situation for an emergency waiver of consent, which, as you know, there are no principles and strategies for that. The, the basic principle is that there needs to be a consistent effort to create some overall community awareness uh, of the project so that the community from which the patients arise has already been somewhat informed and there's been appropriate opportunity for people to raise objections, to be involved in looking at the protocol, and then have a way of actually declaring themselves as, if you like, conscientious objectors, if, should they so desire. Uh, then, with an emergency waiver, you certainly try to get consent, and the hope is that most of the time you'll get consent. But when time is running out, you can uh, start someone in the trial and then get consent a little bit later. Uh, that has not happened that much so far in intensive care. In typical sepsis trials, we try to get consent from individuals, but virtually all the time it's not the individual because they're already too sick, and so it's a proxy. We are considering a potentially hybrid model because it's particularly early sepsis, but it's not exactly the same as post-cardiac arrest. In our discussion with OHRP and with our own IRB, the current model that's approved to work in the Pittsburgh area is a shortened consent that is a one-page bulleted item 
consent that actually addresses all the stipulations for what are required for adequate information, but are done in a way that clearly emphasize the key points. And this is actually quite excited our IRB. They, they like the idea of using shorter, simpler consent and actually builds on a prior piece in JAMA about the need to use simpler consent forms so that people have a better chance of understanding them. That's what's already approved and signed off in Pittsburgh, and it's, all, it's also approved and signed off by OHRP. But OHRP also think that this trial indeed could meet the criteria for emergency waiver. And so we're simultaneously exploring with our IRB and will with other IRBs the possibility of actually doing community awareness in order to file for emergency waiver for consent for this trial. Wow, that's very exciting. And then you were going to discuss some of the other issues about uh, the randomization to the control arm uh, in 2006 in a sepsis trial. Yeah, so um, uh, no one really knows how to do this. <laughs> There's been a lot of debate uh, about whether control arms should be protocolized or whether you should just have usual care. This has extensively been discussed, obviously, since the result of the ARMA trial, the ARDSNET trial published in 2000, where getting it wrong seems to be a very unhelpful thing. <laughs> well, so the NIH, in fact, um, uh, had a consensus conference on this, and the end result was not actually clear that there would be some situations where usual care should just be usual care. Uh, and you don't prescribe anything in other situations where you really want to... Uh, try to uh, be prescriptive. So um, in a way, our three-arm trial, I think, partially addresses that. People are trying to systematically give fluids. In a way, that's our third arm. That It's not necessarily... We, we already know that the river's Edwards catheter is not being used very much in the United States. There's not that many sales figures for it. So even if folks have believed they want to do early goal-directed therapy, they're not titrating to continuous SCVO2 as per the, uh, the Rivers Protocol. If that were true, then Edwards would be selling hundreds of thousands of those catheters per year. So the current standard of care is not exactly as written in the, in the interventional arm in the New England paper. Um, the standard of care, however, may well be more aggressive, systematic uh, use of fluids than was previously the case. If that's the case, then our usual care arm is actually going to look quite similar to our sepsis team arm that doesn't include the protocol. What about the concept of measuring a central venous sat intermittently through a central line that may be in place? Is that being, I mean, it was something you must have had to at least talk about, yeah, right? Yeah, so we discussed, so, so again, uh, th these are great questions. Uh, part, one of the things to remember here is you cannot possibly answer all questions in one trial. Right, right, right. Um, I decided, um, and so far did not meet with too much objection from my colleagues, that actually, that's not a long-lasting question. That that while it might, while Edwards may have patented the ability to do to have their particular catheter, the technique of doing a continuous readout is a relatively generic technique, which a few years from now could be available at a relatively inexpensive price on virtually any catheter for everyone. And so it's not necessarily the best use of taxpayer dollars to compare a relatively old technique of doing 
intermittent sampling with a technique which, although it might be slightly expensive now, a few years from now is likely to be very inexpensive. Because then you get the answer to a question which won't be that useful for that many years. Does, does that make sense? Well, no. So, so then, um, just for the listeners then, so that middle arm, the sepsis team, would they be using something like the precept catheter or no? The plan is not to use that arm because one of the things we wanted to do was stress, was to separate the notion of oxygen target delivery input. Is that in itself valuable over and above the notion of simply jumping on a patient and aggressively fluid resuscitating them? As someone who's involved in clinical outcomes, making it from a two-arm to a three-arm trial, uh, again, that must have been a lot of discussion in terms of increasing the number of patients you would need to recruit, right? So let me, so let me come back to that, because that ties into a number of issues, even into the ethics of it. Yes, it increases the sample size. On the other hand, we built in decision rules where any one of the three arms can be stopped early. Oh, wow. So if it turns out that there's no, that it's futile to measure the difference between, for example, usual care and the, if you like, this third arm, the sepsis arm, because usual care has already changed so much that it's already aggressive, then those arms will be collapsed after the first few hundred patients that patients will only be randomized into arms for which there's a meaningful chance to find a difference between the arms. Absolutely. The other, the other thing we did, in part because we knew that in 2006, no one really has a right answer, just different answers for the exact trial design, is we thought long and hard about our DSMB and the role of the DSMB. And the DSMB um, is actually going to be working with us during the first year to finalize the final shape of the three arms. It's still possible that we may end up deciding it's two arms and the final shape of the sample size. So the DSMB is actually going to sign off on our final proposed study design because we recognize that the landscape is continually changing. I mean, the Surviving Sepsis campaign has been very successful, we think, but no studies have been published on it. And even as of this week, there's been a perspective launched in the New England Journal of Medicine that perhaps the surviving sepsis campaign is not all that it could be. It's, we have the responsibility to try to conduct the most sensible research question that is most appropriate to the current and future milieu. And there can be quite a time delay between when you first write a grant and when you first enroll and when you finish enrolling. Especially Recognize in such a dynamic field as, uh, as critical care medicine, obviously. It's very dynamic. Our interest is, we think the overall research question about having, gene about having sepsis teams fo fo focusing on those patients is, is a worthwhile question which has not been definitively answered. But the nuts and bolts of the exact design involve both scientific issues and ethical issues. And so the final sign-off really goes back to the DSMB, which, is, which actually has some very senior folks uh, from both emergency medicine and critical care involved in it, and has also got the chair of the Department of Bioethics at Harvard University sitting on it. 
uh, and they've been well primed to consider the ethical issues about consent, about the role of the third arm, about the decision-making power for stopping arms that we actually think, although they sounded good in 2004, 2005, clearly as the patients are being enrolled, that arm should now be collapsed with the other arm or whatever. I had a couple big-picture uh, questions that uh, you'll probably like regarding this. So um, from speaking with you and reading about this, the focus then is trying to uh, piece together optimal resuscitation, but uh, the relationship between the process uh, consortium and the surviving sepsis campaign, specifically patients will still be able to receive things like uh, low-dose steroids if they have vasopressor-dependence and drodrocogen alpha. Perhaps if you could talk about that, that might be so interesting. In fact, um, when looking at the candidate sites to be enrolled in the trial, and, and and again, because of the changing dynamic field, even even the final number of sites and exactly which sites may change. But when we submitted the grant to the NIH, the sites that agreed to participate were sites that also agreed that they currently had not quite worked out what to do with early goal-directed therapy, but were aware of the surviving sepsis guidelines and were certainly they believed were complying with the guidelines in terms of appropriately selecting patients for uh, head tilt, uh, APC therapy, early administration of antibiotics, etc., and that they were doing all of that. Our interest is to conduct this trial in an environment where all other aspects of care are conducted as well as possible. Right, because I remember that was some of there was some discussion in the literature after uh, Manny Rivers' study was published that a lot of the uh, uh, standard approaches to severe sepsis had changed since then. And, and we reflected that in our design. So his paper assumed a 46% mortality rate or found a 46% mortality rate in the control arm and reduced that down to 31%. In conducting our trial, we ran several observational pilots in three centers around the country. And in all three of those centers, the mortality rates were much lower. So our, our trial design is powered assuming that the control arm mortality is much lower than that originally shown in Manny's. On the other hand, we're also powering the study to find a smaller difference because we think that... Um, early goal-directed therapy by a sepsis team, whether it's the full rivers protocol or some shorter version of it, will be a worthwhile thing to do, even if it only drops mortality by, for example, 4 or 5%. It's still important to find. Do you have a vision for what uh, the sepsis team, the ideal sepsis team, is this something that's supposed to be maybe tied into the rapid response team, or will it be a combination of an intensivist and an ER physician? Or so, that, so that's a great point. So we're following classic um, kind of QI approaches, where we want to standardize the attributes of the team, but allow local tailoring of how that team functions. Oh. So by that, the training and qualifications of the team will be something you can read right off a manual and you'll know how to put in place. And the time allocation of the team, their ability to dedicate their time to just the sepsis patient will be generic and common. However, individual hospitals may create those teams from within their ICU staff, from within their ED staff, or from across the two. And that's analogous to when places set up trauma teams and have people take ATLS certification 
you know, American College of Surgery doesn't specify exactly how many components of those team are emergency medicine physicians or trauma surgeons or anesthesiologists. They say, here's the re- requisite set of training and experience that these people need to have, and here's what they're expected to do. Where they come from, we completely understand, will depend on all the other responsibilities and organization structure of your hospital. I know two other important parts of the study are that you're going to be measuring uh, serum markers and there are cost-effectiveness issues, which I know is one of your other areas of expertise, and maybe if you could comment on that. The, the grant is, is a, what's called a program project grant, uh, and project number one is the clinical trial. Project number two is asking the question, if early goal-directed therapy works, why does it work? You know, we, it's kind of the holy grail to really understand in sepsis what's driving the organ dysfunction. And so we have a suite of biomarkers really testing four existing hypotheses. One is that it's uh, inflammation-mediated, another is that it's ischemia-mediated, another is that it's ischemia reperfusion-mediated, and the other is that it's coagulation-mediated. And so we have a set of hypotheses based on how these biomarkers change with resuscitation and change with outcomes that will allow us to make inferences about the relative importance or not of changes in key readouts in those four potential mechanisms for driving the organ dysfunction, which is likely what's being modulated on the way to changing survival in, in this study. And we think this will be really helpful for people understanding how or why the therapies work and also in a kind of feedback loop to basic science researchers to think about correlates with animal models and in vitro studies of sepsis and organ dysfunction. Then uh, the third project is a kind of health services project that includes understanding the cost effectiveness and also uh, understanding what it took to put the teams in place because... Um, it's important with these complex service delivery and organization interventions that you create a blueprint to really help hospitals. If the, you know, we're very hopeful that this study is going to be positive, and when it is positive, we want people to go and read in technical appendices or websites exactly what it is that we did at all the different sites to make these teams work so that people really have a good understanding of how to take this thing in a package off the shelf and put it into their own institution to work. Would you like to make some sort of a final comments to the listeners about the, the process consortium? I mean, it sounds like it's been a tremendous amount of coordination amongst multiple centers to try and answer some of these absolutely uh, pivotal questions in critical care. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think there are, there are two or three things that get me really excited about this. One is that I love the fact that we're trying to tackle the disease rather than the place. And it's clearly obvious that the clock can be ticking before someone hits the ICU. And it's wonderful to partner with emergency medicine and try to think about tackling this problem across different regions of the hospital. Um, I also think that uh, I'm very hopeful that we are going to get a positive result because I'm really excited that this would lead to a kind of national and international standardization of exactly how patients are managed from the moment they hit the door, which might not only improve outcomes in general, but by decreasing or or improving the signal-to-noise signal, decreasing the noise by standardizing initial care, could then actually make care of sepsis 
standardized enough that future sepsis trials of monoclonal antibodies, et cetera, would be more likely to be positive because the background milieu has become more homogenous and more standardized. And then the final piece is, uh, uh, thanks to the NIH, we can run this uh, in the United States. But we've already been speaking with partners uh, abroad about whether a larger version of this trial could, in fact, run internationally. The NIH piece is for the U.S. piece. But uh, borrowing from the model of uh, the large nice sugar process, where the Australians are running a, hyper, uh, a tight um, glycemic control trial, and the Canadians are running one too. The Australian one is nice. The Canadian one is sugar, and they've they take care of their own trials in each country with their own funding and their own sites. But they agreed to work together on overall. Uh, enrollment criteria and data collection so that the two trials can also be joined together to, to be even better powered in a kind of prospective meta-analytic way, if that makes sense. And uh, uh, we're encouraged that this is not only a great opportunity to do a large U.S. sepsis consortium trial, but also for the U.S. to potentially partner with uh, colleagues and sites in other countries to really understand standardization of sepsis care uh, across the globe. I, I, I am fantastically excited about uh, what lies ahead for us with process. We've been speaking today on the Critical Care Podcast with Dr. Derek Angus from the University of Pittsburgh about a new research consortium called Protocolized Care for Early Septic Shock, or PROCESS. Uh, this really has been uh, one of the most exciting podcasts I've been able to be part of, and I'm sure we're going to be hearing lots more about this in the future. Thanks so much for being with us today, Dr. Angus. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Richard. This concludes our podcast for Wednesday, October 18th, 2006. Look for an article in the December issue of Critical Connections for more information on this project. And future podcasts will feature a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. For the iCritical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Register now for the Society's 36th Critical Care Congress to be held in Orlando, Florida, USA, February 17th through the 21st, 2007. Connect with your colleagues and gain a multi-professional perspective on clinical topics relevant to your daily ICU environment by attending the various cutting-edge sessions, hands-on workshops, informative symposia, and exciting social engagements. Don't miss the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Register today by speaking with an SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or by visiting www.sccm.org.